All right, everybody, welcome to the Everyone Has a Story podcast with your host, Chad Jacota. Please welcome our guest, the ever charismatic and stunningly <laughs> gorgeous Jerry Schomer, everybody. Howdy, howdy, Chad. Hello, everybody. Good to, good to be here, Chad. Well, I'm glad to have you. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. Uh, 25 years, I think you said. Twenty, At least 25, yeah. Uh, and we both are looking more handsome all the time. <laughs> we definitely are. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have better hair than I do because I have about six. <laughs> it's wider. It's definitely wider. And as much as I, I have my fantasy age that I go by now, which is 35, uh, people get a kick out of that. But uh, uh, yeah, I'm pushing. I'm. I'm above 35 now, uh, but it, I like having 35. That's a good age to stay yeah. at. Uh, Unfortunately, my health. as much as I hate to admit it, I'm over 35 as well. <laughs> well, I knew you would pass me someday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and my daughter was in your class. Uh, yeah. She's definitely um, passed, passed that. She says hello, and so does Vince, my son. And yeah, I'm looking. Being great to get all the kids together again and see them all. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, at some point I think I'll, through my comedy travels, I'd at least like one day to make it to Seattle, but oh, yeah, some of those things are just, uh, I don't necessarily want to say out of, out of my control, but, uh, the momentum has to be behind you in order to, you know, cross the uh, continent. And it was, it was slowly creeping up behind me. And then coronavirus came in and said, not so fast, Chad. (laughs) Well, we've been here now, gosh, uh, well over a year extra. And we normally would be back in Michigan, but because of the virus, we didn't feel safe flying. And normally we drive back and forth, which is, has its obstacles as well because of the virus. Right. Um, so yeah, it definitely has changed things. Wow. That's got, that's gotta be a drive. That's That's gotta take two or three days. I would think huh? 2,400 miles. And if we push it, we can do it in three days, wow. four days is more comfortable and five days is like a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and probably by five days, Mrs. Schomer's had enough of you and she wants out of the car, huh? Yeah. Well, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is wonderful to see this gorgeous country of ours pull up in front of you, you know. Yeah. And um, we kind of predict now what's coming around the bend because we've done it so many times. Sure. Sure. All right. Well, like I said, the 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 focus of my podcast is to hear everybody's individual story. And while I know bits and pieces of a section of your story from when your children and myself were growing up, uh, there's quite a bit of it from prior to that and since that time that I don't have any uh, any knowledge of, and, and I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, let's give me a bit of history, why, why I ended up in San Lai County, for instance. Um, that actually... It, well, four billion years of Earth's history certainly did something to make that happen. Right. But uh, more recent things would be like in 1914, uh, the world was experiencing another pandemic, the diphtheria one. And 
My father, uh, or grandfather, Charlie Schumer, was born in Ruth, Michigan, and my grandmother, who was born, I believe, in Germany, but grew up in Seabween. Okay. Somehow they met, and uh, things weren't going well on the farm. They were trying to farm, and they decided to go to Detroit with their kids, which uh, they had a family of, let's see, there were, may have been five boys at the time and one daughter, um, but the, the diphtheria hit them hard. Um, in 1914, in just two weeks' time, my uh, dad's oldest three brothers died. Wow. Charles, wow. Leonard, and Ralph, they were like uh, maybe 10, 8, and 7 or something like that. And uh, my dad had the diphtheria also, and, but he's, he was a survivor. My aunt, I do not know whether she had it. And there may have been a younger brother, but um, the doctor told him, uh, Charlie Shomer, you need to take your family out of the city and go someplace safe. And his, uh, his brother, Frank Shomer, owned some property on Basler Road, which is just north of uh, Port Sandlake. Right. And uh, somehow they communicated, probably by letter. And uh, Frank Shomer said to Charlie Shomer, come on up to Port Sandlake. There's some good farmland here and uh, you can get your start here. So they boarded the train from Detroit, took it all the way to Carsonville back in 1914. I'm not sure what time of year. Uh, there was a train depot back in those days and Carsonville was a bustling town. There was like over 50 businesses, 50 re retail businesses at that time and boarded a buck wagon with whatever belongings they had and headed to headed east to Port Sanlac where the, the road ends and the lake begins. And um, from there they walked with their belongings and dad must've been about three years old uh, they walk one mile north and about a half mile west on to Basler Road to an old farmhouse, which is still there. And uh, they took up residence and started their life anew. And um, so that was my dad's part of it. My mother's part of it came from, uh, well, her dad was from Lindsay, Ontario. He never became a U.S. citizen. He had to report to uh, his alienship at once a year. My grandmother was, uh, um, she uh, was a bacon um, and her mother was a brunk. And uh, they actually, the, uh, the uh, my grandpa Matthews came over to uh, Michigan they, with his dad and mom. And they eventually owned the land right next to the Church Hill there. St. Mary, we call it St. Mary's Hill in between Carsonville and Port Stanley. Right. And um, they uh, made, a, made a life there. And um, so that was my, that's how I got here. Uh, Grandma Bacon actually was in Port Yarn for a while. She was, she also migrated from Canada and they lived right next door to Thomas Edison in, in Port Yarn. Wow. Where, Evidently, she, as a little girl, carried water for Thomas Edison, and uh, my great uncle Tony Brunk was a good friend, good friend with Tommy, and they had a telegraph connected between the two houses. Um, he, and he ended up working for Thomas Edison, maybe over in New Jersey. I'm not sure, but uh, a great aunt, great aunt, told me that Tommy Thomas Edison woke my uncle Tony up and said, "Tony." 
who was a jeweler, could work with timepieces. Um, he said, can you make a timepiece run backwards for me? And my uncle said to Thomas Edison, his friend, shut up and go back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, my uncle's name isn't on anything uh, that Thomas Edison <laughs> invented. <laughs> but I, friends can talk to one another like that. Sure. Anyway, um, it's always kind of fun to tell that part. So anyway, mom and dad got together and that's a whole other story. And then uh, I, my older sister came first. Uh, he was a 1936 baby. My brother Dennis a 1939 and I'm a 1944 baby. I was a war baby. So when I was being born, uh, everybody knows uh, the terrible things that were happening in, uh, in really more in Poland, but in throughout Europe with uh, the Nazis in control and right. what was happening. So those years after I was born, uh, you know, was, it was still a lot of talk and bustle and hustle about what went on in the war. And uh, certainly Memorial Days were definitely more Memorial Days than they, they can be for people today. Sure. But um, it was it was something to see the, all the soldiers that had survived the war marching in the parades and in the different towns and um, having a true Memorial Day celebration. It was it was a big deal. And nowadays, um, most of those soldiers are you know dying off very quickly. Yeah. Uh, I talked to a gentleman up here at uh, Children's Hospital who every week is now. Uh, doing him, uh, um, he is a veteran uh, from uh, uh, served in Germany, not during the Second World War, but uh, when the wall was, they were thinking of taking the wall down. But he he goes down to uh, a cemetery, military cemetery, once a week to do the honor guard, and they have two or th two or three guys that are being buried there every week. You know, so yeah, uh, a lot's happened. Yeah. But anyway, um, things have certainly changed in Port Sanlac, and uh, um, we're all a product of our times and and what we what we get from our mom and dad. That's for sure. Um, anyway, um, grew up in Port Sanlac when Port Sanlac had no televisions. It was. Um, Baseball was the national sport, and uh, you, when you saw people, you talked about friends and what was going on in the neighborhood. You got your news that way, or on radio, or the newspapers. Uh, you, um, when you talked to people, you talked about two things for sure: the weather and baseball. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know a whole lot of baseball starting out, but uh, we had independent leagues back in those days. Every town had one, and every Sunday there was a baseball game, and everybody showed up for them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the cars would pull in and line up, and somebody would be selling old granddad root beer and some other cold drinks out of a mosh tub with some ice. Great <laughs> baseball game. And, uh, but it wasn't until um, 1955, actually, when uh, my dad give me the opportunity to go down and see a Tiger baseball game. And that's, uh, that really changed my life. And as it did for so many 
guys and for girls it was unfortunate for them they had no chances of playing baseball but um any kid any boy well girls too girls got excited about baseball and a lot of baseball fans my mother was one of them uh she listened to the tigers faithfully all the way all the way up through the last 80 you know the 88th year and um, but in 55, I went down and there was a young fellow in right field named Al Kaline. He was just <laughs> starting out. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not kidding. Anytime anything was hit, there was this roar, even on a swing of the mat. There was this, this old brick, it was called Brick Stadium at that time. Right. It was like a, a volcano of sound and when if you got there at night it was there was a cauldron and there was smoke coming out of it from all of the people smoking cigarettes right but uh you know when they closed the, the old tiger stadium up they they handed out a booklet and there was a little story in there about what i'm talking about every kid that went there got excited about wanting to be a major league baseball player sure. emerald green diamond and these guys and these very nice white uniforms throwing this beautiful little ball around and i got hooked i uh i played baseball uh seriously and wanted to be a detroit tiger for many many years in fact um i went on uh, i went to college my dad and the local priest said no you're going to college if you're not going to be a priest you're going to go to college dang it <laughs> <laughs> and uh so I didn't know. I went for other reasons. I went to be. I chose Western Michigan because okay. I think the year before, two years before that, they were the World Series champions of the United States, and oh, wow. I thought, that's where I want to go. Right. right. And then I'll go play there, and I'll become a Detroit Tiger like Charlie Maxwell. <laughs> and uh, so I did go, and. Um, I uh, played the freshman ball, and then I did make it to the varsity, but I was down a peg. That I, I, I should have stayed at third base, but actually should have stayed at pitching. I, was a, I had a pretty good fastball, and nobody could touch me in the Port Huron League when I played in Babe Ruth, I'm really, except one guy. Wow. Uh, he hit two home runs off of me, and I was cussing him <laughs> as he went around the plate or went around the the diamond and that but everybody else I, I pretty well retired him um but i decided that i wanted to play every day so i wasn't going to pitch i wanted i didn't want to play every fourth day i wanted to play every day so. and i was a solid third baseman but decided if i was going to make the pros i had to play shortstop okay and there was a great shortstop there at that time and uh well it didn't pan out uh in college, but I did, and I uh, fell in love with uh, geology as, as a, um, a discipline, and uh, but uh, never really thought about teaching. And then as I, as I was going through all of that, and, uh, I was really loaded up with a lot of science classes. Um, uh, and rethought what I wanted to do. And of course, Vietnam was going on then. And right. you know, if you weren't in school or were teaching, then you were probably going to be packing a, a rifle and heading for Vietnam. Right. And, um, so at first, I, in fact, when Kennedy first sent 
soldiers in there in the advisory. I thought, oh no, here we go. I'm going to be packing a gun and going to war uh, and just kind of accepting that. And uh, But uh, I was thinking about what I want to do with my life and I kind of fell into teaching, not for the right reasons, just because I couldn't think of something else, but it it fit for me because I could identify with kids like uh, Chad Jakota and, and other kids. I Mom had me in school at four and a half and I had, was a terrible reader, had a hard time um, getting through books. I had 20-20 vision, but I could not get my eyes to focus when needed and trying to get from one side of the page back to the other was really troublesome. Uh, two grandkids that have the same same problem and they got help and I was the mentor during one of those. Uh, uh, and uh, I ended up becoming a better reader here in the last few years just because of doing vision therapy. Oh, wow. I highly recommend that. And I wish um, more teachers uh, knew about it because I think it would, could make a tremendous difference. Now, that's is that considered like maybe some type of form of dyslexia or is it something completely different than that? Yeah, it's, it's a different thing altogether. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, you know, obviously you, to get uh, this therapy, it can cost a lot of money, but I think schools could do, learn some of the basic things for kids and perhaps even do them, you know, try to determine where their kid is having these difficulties and get them some help uh, right in the school. Sure. Uh, but um, anyway, I ended up in Detroit. Uh, with, I went to Detroit to do my student teaching. Okay. And um, I was working right down by the Ambassador Bridge at Webster Elementary School. Okay. The principal wanted me there and she said I had a great voice my, you know, nobody likes their voice when they listen to it. <laughs> but anyway, I, uh, another job opened up uh, on Clark and Porter right next to um, Clark Park. Sure. And um, so in December 1966, I took a job uh, at Mayberry Elementary. I was the science teacher and taught uh, second through sixth grade. Um, I needed a lot of help as a teacher and I got it. Thank God there were a lot of wonderful teachers around me and I had a great principal that were there for me. I'm a terribly disorganized person, but I, I had, as the secretary said, Jerry, you've got something that the other people don't have and that's empathy. You, you really understand where these kids are coming from and they, they feel it, they feel it. Sure. So that was, um, that was nice to know that. and. Um, but anyway, I thought, you know, gosh, I'm here. And uh, I was down watching the Detroit Tigers play. And I'm not kidding, at least once, twice a week when, I, when they were in town. I'd catch the, the bus on, on Werner and Clark and head on down. It was only about 10 oh, yeah. minutes. Bus right ride. there. Yeah. yeah. I to, when I worked for Detroit Police, I worked in, in Southwest Detroit. Oh, so you know Werner and Junction? And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I spent 10 years of my life down there, yeah. Oh, my God. So do you remember uh, Dooley's Coney Island show? Oh, yeah. I've had plenty of, <laughs> I've had plenty of Coney dogs at, at, and, and breakfast, too, at, at 
Oh my gosh. Morning, yeah. I spent every, I'm really, if I wasn't going to a hockey game or a baseball game, I was at Dooley's Coney Island having my supper. Wow. Uh, a bowl of chili and a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I, I thought, hey, I heard about the semi-pro league in town, or yeah, and decided to just head over to uh, would be um, on Grand River uh, near the old Olympia Stadium. That's where they played a lot of their ball games. Okay. That in Butzel Park and um, over there on uh, Little Mac, there was another field over there. And uh, there, was, there was a team uh, practicing that day. And uh, I uh, walked up to the manager and I said, uh, can I try out for your team? And he said, yeah, again, come on. So he hit me some balls and he could see that I could throw. And he says, yeah, we'll get you a uniform and put you on the field. And um, so I started playing semi-pro ball and played against uh, Billy Heft, uh, famous Detroit Tiger baseball player, pitcher. Uh, Ray Herbert was in that league. Okay. And I heard that Ray was throwing batting practice for the Tigers. So um, I thought, son of a gun, I can throw a ball. I can... <laughs> I'm going to see if I can throw batting practice to the Tigers. If I can't make it one way, I will get on that field somehow. <laughs> and uh, so I, I called, uh, I don't know what day, it might have been a Saturday, but I got a hold of Ed Catalinas, uh, who was the head player scout. And uh, I told him what I was doing. And he said, Jerry, I'm an old teacher from Detroit. And you're absolutely right. Johnny Padres, his arm is hurting. We need an extra batting practice pitcher. Uh, uh, next next weekend, come on down. The Indians are in town. And we'll suit you up. And uh, we'll write you a check. And you can start throwing. Oh. And I said, well, gosh, you don't even have to pay me. I'll do this for nothing. He said, no, no. No, no. We've got to pay you. So in the meantime, I had gone up to Port Sanlac and told people what I was going to do and they didn't believe me. <laughs> and uh, so I had gone down to, on Lafayette, there was a great sporting goods store down there and I bought a brand new pair of spikes. I bought a hat without the little snap in the back, one that actually fit me that said D on it, the official Detroit Tiger hat. Okay. And I had a, I had a fairly, fairly new glove <coughs> that was broken. So. Come that Sunday morning, I threw my stuff in a nice leather bag. I was dressed in a suit and tie. I mean, I was really dolled up, as my mother would say. And I went down that corner of Werner, uh, that would be, no, uh, Michigan and Trumbull. And uh, I went into the main office and there was a security guard there. And he asked me what I wanted. And I told him I was here to see Ed Catalinas. He said, well, hang on just a minute. About four minutes, five minutes later, out comes Ed Catalinas, a big bruising guy. And I've seen pictures of him in the yearbooks. And uh, he said, Jerry, how are you? And I said, just fine, said, Mr. Catalinas. And he said, that is a really nice mustache you have and sideburns. 
the sideburns probably down a lot here and the mustache and inside my head I was saying oh no <laughs> now there, at that time there were there were no ball players with mustaches and sideburns except one guy I found out later that and I'll tell you in the rest of the story but um, anyway he was very nice and he said well come on let's uh, let's go uh, over to the clubhouse we're going to go uh, right out through here and so we walked along call, uh, corridors all the way over to the third base side and got right into the rookie room, which was nondescript, kind of plain gray. But he said, uh, now, Jerry, if you don't mind, I'm going to have you go back out by the dugout and go straight out through that door and right straight out and wait for me out there. I got to see what transpires, transpires with Mayo Smith. And uh, and I, I knew what transpires means. It means you don't have the job yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, so about, I'm going to say, 15 minutes later, I'm the only guy standing out there next to my field of dreams. I could have just jumped over and ran around on the warning track and touched the grass. But I heard every footstep and then my hand on my shoulder. And I turned around and Ed Catalina said, Jerry, I'm really sorry, but Mayo doesn't want anybody out there on that ball field with a mustache. I'm really sorry. Willie Horton, he's got one and he's going to have to shave it off. Well, you couldn't see the, the Willie Horton's mustache very well. Right. Uh, but anyway, um, I said, uh, 15 seconds later, well, I guess I could shave it off. And uh, he said, no, 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 don't do that. It looks really good on you. It's very much a part of you. And uh, But I've got a couple of free tickets for you today. And uh, I said, well, what could I say? Thank you. Um, and I don't know if it was because they thought I was a hippie or Mr. Mayo Smith just had this strict... Uh, thing about dress code and facial hair or what. Um, anyway, um, we said our goodbyes. I en ended out uh, outside the stadium and I had two tickets in my hand. A uh, young guy walked by and I said, here, you want a ticket to a ball game? And I gave him one of them. Never did see him. I, game time, I went back in and it was probably the best ticket you'll ever have. It was right next to the dugout, right on ground level. I was sitting next to Dick Wirt, third baseman who was ailing that day, and he was talking to the uh, the, the uh, Tiger doctor who was sitting right there with his son. I didn't engage with them at all, but I, you know, I don't think I, I can't tell you who was pitching that day. I can't tell you anything that was happening that day. You know, I, I, from 1955, when my dad took me to that first game, when so many guys had that dream. And now to this point, you know, where it, I thought, you know, I've done my best. I tried my best. It's not going to happen. And I, so I left at about the third inning and went back to my apartment on the west side near Werner Junction over on Lansing Street. Okay. Very close to, uh, uh, let's see, Porter and Lansing, mm -hmm. right in there. 
Um, the building's burnt down now. Uh, but uh, about two weeks later, I said, you know, gosh, I got thinking about, I like Detroit. I love working with these kids. Um, uh, Detroit was a fun place. And, uh, but it was also the year of the, the riots. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided uh, uh, that, you know, I'm gonna, I had heard about the Peace Corps in college and there was a, 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 a gal that came and talked to one of our classes. And I thought, you know, you know I've always liked the idea of going to someplace uh, overseas, thought of Africa with the Vietnam War going on. And by that time, I, I had done a lot of thinking and realized that a lot of my friends were going there and I wish they didn't have to. And I didn't want to be one of the guys that had to pull, a, pull the trigger to shoot anybody. I, I'm very thankful for all those guys that went, but I'm also very sad for them too. Mm-hmm. But um, I... Um, I decided, you know, I'm going to go down and take the test to go into the Peace Corps. I think I'll just join the Peace Corps. Hmm. Uh, so I had no, I, I thought, gosh, if there's a language test on this thing, I'm not going to make it. But um, I went down, and about um, a month later, I got a, a letter in the mail saying I've been accepted to Peace Corps. And I thought it said Libya, which I thought, wow, Mediterranean Sea, that sounds pretty cool. Then I read closely, it was Liberia, West Africa. I thought, what, where the heck is Liberia? I had to take the bus over to Wayne State University and the Detroit Public Library to find one book with two paragraphs about Liberia, okay? This is before the uh, state, their colony that was settled by ex-slaves from the United States. So I thought I better take this, even though I had put in, I want to go to India. Okay, I want to, let's go as far as I can sure. Away sure. from the US right now. So I got accepted. And um, in the meantime, things were really brewing in the city. I continued to play baseball. And then on that, the day of the riots, I was at Old Olympia Stadium, uh, Northwestern Field. We had army helicopters flying overhead and uh, there were two or three fires going on. I didn't know, I had no clue. None of us had a clue what was going on. Right. Took my shower and got on the bus and McGraw and Olympia or McGraw and uh, Grand River and headed towards the city where I'd have to pick up a transfer. And uh, some guys came by on a convertible, whooping it up and I didn't think too much of that. I'm the only guy on the bus with the bus driver and I'm heading down Grand River and as we get closer, we can see people broken out windows, people walking out through the windows, carrying TV sets and whatever. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is terrible. And me, naive, (laughs) we better report this to the police. (laughs) (laughs) I got home, my landlady was waiting for me and she used some expletives that I hadn't heard before and why where were you and all of this and she said you realize you went through a a riot zone what so my girlfriend happened to be on the other side of Clark Park at the time 
the army was stationed in Clark Park. There was a curfew at nine o'clock. Again, uh, I should have just walked through Clark Park where I would, would have been perfectly safe, but no, I had to go down to Fort Street and up Junction, <laughs> <laughs> coming back from our place. And um, there were guys out on the front porches uh, with their shotguns and their uh, hunting rifles. And I had to announce to them, don't shoot. Mr. Shomer, I teach your kids at Mayberry. Oh, Mr. Shomer, Mr. Shomer, you're, you're good. Come on through. <laughs> so in, I think it was late July of 1968, I uh, got on my first plane ride to Philadelphia and the rest is history and uh, ended up in Library of West Africa. And uh, had, um, that's a that's a whole nother story, but uh, love baseball to this day. And in fact, on one of my walks here in Seattle, this is where I'm at right now because of the virus. I walk up to a place called Maple Leaf Park, and I could hear uh, the sting of a bat on a ball, and I thought I got to investigate this. And it's hard to find kids that are really interested in baseball these days. There are some. But it's not like my day when every kid played baseball, you know, pretty much, you know. And uh, on the field was a, a father and a son and a, a daughter, and they were, dad was pitching the son some balls, and he was, he had a heck of a swing. This kid had a heck of a swing. They just moved into Seattle area. He didn't get signed up in time for the spring baseball. He was going to play in the, um, Wilson Football League, uh, the Seattle Seahawks Quarterbacks League. And you could just tell by the way this, this kid, he, you could tell he loved baseball. Yeah. I went out and shagged. I didn't have a glove, but I told him I'll go out and I'll, feel, and I'll gather the balls up and try to get them into you. And uh, so we had a nice chat. And I had the young fellow, I said, I, I don't know if I can help you, but you know which eye you are, you right eye or left eye. So we tested him and we found out that he was batting left-handed and he's left-eyed. And I told his dad, I said, you know, your son is left-eyed. And he said, what? Yeah, he's, he's dominant left-eyed. And I showed him how we did this. And I said, if he's gonna bat left-handed, he probably should open his stance up. So you're not looking over your nose, you know? And uh, he said, my well, gosh, never thought about that. And he said, and then he got talking about a a ball player he knew that really had a wide open stance in and he would close it up as the ball was coming in. So um, it was exciting to see sure. a kid that was really in, interested in baseball and brought back a lot of memories. And I thought, I got to mention that to Chad. Yeah. So baseball definitely played a big part in my life along with a lot of good people. And uh, even though it didn't, I didn't fulfill the dream of what I wanted. I thank the Detroit Tigers and Mayo Smith for saying no. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be talking to you. <laughs> you wouldn't have known my daughter and my son. Right. I wouldn't have gone to CPS because they wouldn't have existed. So life has a funny way of working its way out. And it's, it's definitely a blessing to be here. That's for sure. Yeah. So... I could go on and on about baseball. So 
Well, I, you know, I'll, I'll give you a little, you know, because I've been a baseball fanatic. My grandfather introduced me to the Tigers, uh, you know, in 84. And uh, my, my mother and I used to go round and round because Kirk Gibson was my favorite player. She hated Kirk Gibson. She's like, he's just too arrogant. I can't stand him, you know. So, and <clears throat> I still remember, you know, the very first time I ever went to Tiger Stadium. You know, because you, you, you had to walk up those ramps and then eventually you got to a point where you could see the field. Yes. You know, and at like 11 or 12 years old, you you just think, you, God, I've never seen grass that green in my entire life. <laughs> uh, and uh, and then once I started working in Detroit, uh, I would go to two, three games a month, depending on what my schedule was, because Back then, the attendance wasn't very great, and if you worked in the city and showed them your credentials, they'd let you in the bleachers and just to sit back there and relax because they, they certainly weren't worried about a sellout at that point. And, yeah. uh, and then I had stayed away from it for a little while just with scheduling and with the kids being younger. It was just difficult to kind of work it out. But I, I got a little magic uh, uh, in the month of October in – 2006 because i actually got a chance to work in the tigers dugout for game three of the 2006 alcs oh my gosh and i was in the oakland a's bullpen for game four when the tigers clinched the pennant and went to the world series oh my yeah and then the last year i worked in detroit was 2007 and uh, a couple of bosses i worked for knew that i was going to leave, but they also knew what kind of a baseball fanatic I was. So I actually got the chance to work in a Tigers dugout one more time on the 4th of July, 2007 for a day game when they played the Cleveland Indians. And uh, so I've had a chance to walk on that grass and in that field. And, you know, some players don't really talk to you too much and other players are Will you know, especially if they're injured or maybe they're a pitcher and they're not going to play that day, and and they'll they'll talk to you. And it was surprising. I spent uh, in game four. I got into a pretty good discussion with a pitcher named Esteban Loaiza. He was pitching for the Oakland A's at the time. And in between, like inning two and six, we sat there, and I think I was more interested in his life and what it was like to be a professional athlete. And he kept asking me, God, like you were, I mean, you're, you're a policeman in Detroit. God, that's got to be the scariest thing in the world. And I'm like, oh, it has its moments, but, uh, you know, look at what I, they're paying me to do this right now. You know, and it, it, it was a good time. But I, I still remember when Maglio Ordonez hit that home run, even all the way out in the bullpen, just the sound of the crack, you just knew it, you know, and you start looking up to see where it's going and as soon as it made it over the fence by the bullpens, the place just exploded. It, you know, it's one of those memories that you get to walk away from that, you know, hearing it on the radio or watching it on TV is one thing, but there's just nothing like standing there and watching it happen. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the, by far, I think, being able to work that game out of all the different experiences I've had in the 23 and a half years I've been in the law enforcement world, that's probably probably one of the highest points I think I've ever had in my life. Yeah, yes. Well, baseball lovers uh, 
they, we love to hear those kind of stories, that's for sure. And there is something magical about the ballpark. And I, I really, to this day, I think Old Tiger Stadium still has it over some of the new ballparks. Yeah. Uh, so much of that sound and excitement is funneled out very quickly the way they've got them constructed nowadays. And yeah. granted, you got to set maybe behind a, a post in Old Tiger Stadium, but you just felt like you were right there and you, you wanted to be a part of it. You know, yeah. it was exciting. Um, well, I, re I remember the Kirk Gibson uh, home run when he was playing for the for the Dodgers that oh, yeah. kept them alive. That was that was storybook stuff right there. Still, I, uh, every so often I'll fall down a, a little wormhole on YouTube watching classic video highlights, baseball. Oh, yeah. That one is always, always in the top 10 of every video I ever watched. And it doesn't yeah. matter who the content creator was. That one's always in there. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> um, you know, I got to see um, three great sluggers battle it out for the um, batting crown that one year. Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris. And um, actually, it was, there was uh, Norm Cash was right there behind him. Right. And um, Mickey, you know, everybody in New York wanted Mickey to win it. They, they were really down on Roger. I did get to see Rogers. When I, uh, I drove out to my daughter's wedding out in Seattle here. For, I forget what year that was, but I stopped. I was by myself. And I wanted to stop in um, on, uh, Fargo, North Dakota, where he grew up and played, played ball, okay. Roger. And they have this, this nice display of him in one of the shopping centers. They were going to make a museum. But this guy's uniform, if he filled that uniform up, he was a big man. He was a very big man. And But nobody wanted, you know, there weren't too many people that wanted him to, to win that. Right. Uh, uh, probably one of my, to say it all about ballplayers, Ted Williams was a marvelous ball player. I don't know if he was much of a coach, but he was a heck of a ball player. And he was a scientist about it. But uh, like you watching that ball go, you heard the crack and you knew it was gone. Yeah. I was out on uh, left field down the old um, dugout down there for the Tigers. And uh, Ted was in left field. All the, this one player, the last of the, the last inning, the Tigers were up. All they had to do was hit a home run and get one score and they would win it. And I don't know who hit the ball, but as soon as the ball was hit, I watched Ted Williams start running straight into the dugout. He didn't falter. He didn't wait. And he went this way, and the ball went the other way on a line drive shot right over his head into the lower duck. And I thought, wow. Hmm. Oh. Just instinct, you know. Yeah. Um, sure. Well, enough of this baseball stuff. We're going to get people turned off. Yeah, they're going to be like, I thought this was about somebody's life story, not baseball. Yeah. <laughs> So but, after you got yeah. out of the Peace Corps, mm -hmm. did you like immediately come back to Michigan or was there a modified journey for that too? Well, uh, we did, uh, we traveled a little bit in West Africa. Uh, um, there, was a, there were four of us that decided to go by whatever means, uh, which was taxi cab, 
Uh, we call them jungle pays or money buses, trains, um, planes, and even a, a, a boat trip up the Niger River through the Sahara Desert, can you believe it? Oh. Um, so we saw a lot of West Africa, or we had, had traveled to East Africa also to Kenya, Nairobi, or Kenya and Tanzania um, in the, during our midterm. But uh, the West African trip was uh, fabulous. Um, I, just a lot of memorable uh, moments on that trip, um, scenes uh, with people. And um, we, um, one of the places that I remember most is trying to get into Niger from uh, Dahomey. And uh, the river is right there, the, the Niger River. Uh, and you have to cross it. Well, we got there late at night and they closed the bridge. When it gets uh, too dark, they just don't let anybody over. So that meant we were going to have to spend the night on the side of the road. And I looked to my left and there were all of these lights, all of from these little fires that were going over here on the desert ground. And uh, they were all the travelers that had been stopped and now they were going to stay warm and spend the night there. And uh, it was such a wonderful sight to see and to hear, their, hear them talking. And um, we just got happened to get lucky. Uh, there was a, a truckload of soldiers that were going to cross the bridge, and somebody was looking out for us. And they said, "Well, hey, uh, if you want to join them? You can get in the back end of the truck and ride with the soldiers across the bridge." And so we did, and uh, we found a hotel stay and uh, comfortable lodgings, and had a nice breakfast of steak and eggs the next morning and we got ready to go again. And uh, that this that whole trip is another big story in itself, I'm sure. And I, I'm gonna write some of this down. My daughter's been after me to write a lot of it down. I've, I've got a lot of stories that I entertain my grandkids with too. They like to hear about Africa or Someday, if you're good, I'll tell you my chocolate pie story, which happened right in Port Stanley. <laughs> but um, back to little Port Stanley and Carsonville, it, uh, you know, I did not know there was a bigger world beyond Sandusky and Port Huron. Yeah. I really didn't. Occasionally got to Detroit to go visit relatives. But most of our travels were limited to that. And the radio was it and the newspaper. Mm -hmm. So, whatever happened in our world, whatever came into our brains to compare and contrast uh, was through those sources, which in a way was kind of nice because uh, everybody listened to the same radio stations. And you and I could meet and we could talk about what was said and we could say, ah, that's, that's a bunch of malarkey or no, it sounds like it sounds right. So there was something nice about uh, the fact that um, well, nowadays, I mean, I click on a computer and they're tracking me and they're sending me everything that they, th they think I want to know rather than uh, what reality is sometimes. So, but um, yeah, I, I I go back to life in Port Sanic and again, it comes down to the people. Uh, people 
uh, yeah, the religions were kind of a part at that time. You know, the Lutherans did one thing and the Protestants or the Methodists and then the Catholics. And uh, there wasn't any too many marriages in between right. uh, back in those days. And, but, you know, get beyond that. Everybody looked out for one another's kids if you misbehaved in town. Um, Mr. Dakota was going to check you. Right. <laughs> make sure um but uh we had um we we did love radio radio was a great source of information it was very entertaining we had lots of radio programs like uh cowboy westerns like the cisco kid and uh the lone ranger and gene autry and mm-hmm. mystery shows like the shadow and fibber mcgee and molly and, and People would talk about those things too, and wasn't that funny? It wasn't. Oh, what did you think? You know. And we gathered a lot more together, I think, as a people back then. Oh sure. When uh, when you go to church on Sunday, people dallied afterwards. They wanted to catch up on the news. What was happening over in Carsonville Way? What's uh, what did you hear about uh, Aunt Molly doing this and? Uh, uh, did you know about this coming up, and so on and so forth? Um, I was, like I said, a war baby. Um, um, born in '44, and Fort Sandlick had its uh, centennial. It was 100 years old when I think I was about four or five years old. Okay. And I remember uh, tons about that. I just—it was so vivid. In fact, uh, everybody dressed up in old old-fashioned clothes and the parade had lots of horses in it Uh, my sister got to ride in her fancy dress on top of the hearse (laughs) which is now at the museum over there in Fort Sandlake and she must have been only about 11 or 12 I thought she was a lot older than that but uh, I was four and um, I got to see the parade and I got to there are lots of old pictures that have gotten uh, of that that event and um, but I remember being downtown and watching all these people dressed up in these funny clothes get on two big Greyhound buses and they were headed south to Tiger Stadium <laughs> they were going to celebrate the event by going by leaving town <laughs> all the, uh, like older kids that would take care of the younger kids or grandmas and grandpas and everybody else that was dressed up uh, in these old fashioned costumes to see a Tiger ball game. Wow. So, but, uh, you know, one of my favorite places in Port Salic was the drugstore, as it was for everybody, you know. You got to check out comic books. Comic books were really big. You could buy them for a dime a piece. And sometimes you read them four or five times until the covers came off. Yeah. Um, you picked up the newspaper there. You could get your medicine there. And best of all, you could set down for a, a nice chocolate malt or an ice cream sundae or a banana split. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, I can tell you the ice cream store. I talk an ice cream store right now if you want it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
we didn't have a whole lot of money, but a whole lot of uh, a little bit of money went a long way. You could buy a candy bar for a nickel and an ice cream cone for a nickel. But I had it in me. Uh, I just I've been saving up my pennies, and I one day I ran home from school and I said, "Mom, Mom, I just am dying for an ice cream sundae," and I saw a picture of one that I really really like. And she said, well, do you have enough money? I said, yeah, I've saved up. I've got 25 pennies. She said, okay. So I'm, I don't know, I'm probably seven or eight. Back in those days, they let kids run a little bit freer than they did now. Sure. Headed down. I had them stacked in two tens and a five. And Ruth Platts came up behind the counter and she said, well, hi, Jerry, how are you? And I, fine, fine, thank you. I would like to have one of those ice cream sundaes just like that. They had pictures of this stuff up on the wall. And it was a beautiful looking sundae. So she said, okay, I'll fix it up for you. So she back there and she could see her scooping down in there and those beautiful balls of white vanilla ice cream cone stacked one on top of the other. And then the chocolate syrup all rounded around. Oh, it was lovely. And then the marshmallow cream was put on the top of that. And then she turned around and put it in front of me. And I said, but what about the cherry on top? And she said, oh, Jerry, that's an extra five cents. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I wanted that. I wanted that chair to be on there so bad, but I did eat the ice cream. <laughs> I had my first job in, in that drugstore um, when I was about 10. Uh, they, my sister was a, uh, what they call a soda jerk, waited on people and served ice cream, but she wasn't working that day. And uh, But they wanted somebody to wash uh, carpets and clean fixtures and stuff like this. And I said, yeah. oh, yeah, I can do that. So I went down, got hired by Mrs. Platts, and uh, did a, did my job. Picked the mats out, scrubbed them up good, cleaned everything, stood on top of things to clean light fixtures, and had all my work done in probably two hours' time or less. And Mrs. Platts, she comes to me and she says, "Well, Jerry, you did a good job. Uh, I'm going to send you back to Guy. That was Mr. Platts, the pharmacist." Okay. A nice old guy, probably a lot older than I am right now. <laughs> anyway, I went back and I said, hi, guy. And he said, well, Jerry, how are you? I said, doing fine, guy. And he said, have a seat. I, I hear you. All, I owe you some money. I said, well, I did my job. He said, uh, he said, well, Jerry, what do I owe you? And I said, well, probably about $5 of work. <laughs> <laughs> he goes into the safe. He hands me a $5 bill. And I think nothing of it. I thought, well, okay, I'm paid. And I thanked him and I headed home. Well, naturally, the mother was right there on eyes and ears ready to receive all kinds of information and said, well, how did it go? I said, fine, I got my, got my work done, told her what I did. And then she said, well, how much did you make? And I said, well, $5. And she said, oh, my gosh, Jared, that's way too much money. You charge way too much money. You've got to go back and give some of that back to Mr. Platt. 
And I was really frustrated, but I didn't fight around it. I said, oh, okay. So I walked the two blocks back to the drugstore and back to Mr. Platts and said, guy, my mother says I made too much money. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, Jerry, no, you earned it. You just keep that $5, but we're going to start you out on a regular regular hourly wage next month. (laughs) I said, okay. I said, what's that going to be? And he said, well, you're going to be making all 25 cents an hour. (laughs) (laughs) So I knew the guys that were scooping ice cream, they were making, I think they were making 50 cents an hour, but I was a hard laborer and doing the dirty work I deserved. (laughs) 25 cents. So anyway, that was my first job. But uh, my grandkids love these these stories, oh, yeah. especially when you embellish them a little bit. Sure, sure. But, um, of course, I got in lots of trouble as a kid, you know, not necessarily intentionally, but uh, we had, I had a lot of friends in town. And of course, at this early stage of my life, girls were not, I didn't think of the girls as much. Friends, I was not unfriendly to them, but I wasn't interested. I hung out with the guys playing baseball and um, building forts in the woods and all that stuff. Yeah. But, you know, Bill Gruber, a friend of mine, uh, he lives down in Tennessee now. And uh, he says I got him into more trouble than he deserved, you know. (laughs) And uh, I know one night I talked him into climbing the water tower before it was complete. And it was right next to the cemetery. And uh, we got, we got, went up the ladder, which you could get to, there was, they had a smaller ladder attached to that ladder. And we, we climbed here and we got up and there was no railing, no railing. And we were both just scared out of our wits. And, but we walked, all the way around that big tank up there. And then I had to find where the ladder was that was going to be taking us down. (laughs) And we got on our bellies. I crawled over and I started feeling, I felt it. And I was able to get us down safely. And I watched out for Bill. But, uh, you know, we, we should have done it, did it. And we did the same thing with the St. Mary's Church Tower when it was being built. We climbed the scaffolding and we hung a, a set of uh, rosary beads up there. I've told the nuns about it, but they haven't given me any kind of a report about it, whether they're still usable. Um, probably the one of the most dangerous things I did was with a friend of mine, Harry Hawkins, who ended up, uh, I went to college, he went into the Navy. and uh, But he was a crackerjack when it came to electronics and he was he served on ships but he got so good at it they wanted him in the white house he served with uh president carter jerry ford uh one of the bushes i don't know if he was with ronald reagan but before he did all that you know you know what it was like in carsonville you're looking for things to do and it was an icy day in the winter and we uh, he said, ah, let's go down to the harbor and check the ice. So we went out to the South Harbor Wall and 
the ice was probably a good five inches thick. So we decided, let's go out on the ice outside the harbor wall. And we started walking in a due east line and we got out past the little red light out there. And uh, this was from where you would, would have normally got on the, the harbor wall to go swimming. Yeah. And uh, we're out there heading, heading east to Canada. And then all of a sudden, Harry says to me, Jerry, we've got to get the heck off of this ice. And he's running already. Come on. I said, what's up? He says, that little black dock, dot, that's, that's uh, Guy Wilsey coming back in with a fishing tuckle. This, uh, this ice is all going to be busted up. Keep, come on, run. So we're really running now. And as we're running, we could hear break up behind us. And I'm, I'm stretching the truth here okay this is really true we're running like crazy now the smartest thing probably would have been to run maybe towards the light which might have been closer but we ran back to the same place that we got onto the ice we could hear the ice breaking we kept running kept running we finally reached the ladder and we scuttled up and i'm not kidding you 15 second count later, 15 seconds later, we watched the rest of the ice break up into patties. Yes. Yeah, that would have we We might have gotten lucky and been right in the center of the patty and might have made it, but chances are that would have been it. No, and, and there's, not a, there's not a big length of time for survival once you get into that cold water. No, no, there isn't. Yeah. So we did some stuff like that, Chad, and we're still here to talk about it. But there are some folks that did it. It's a different story, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's an old story, and I I really want to research it sometime. A young fellow by the name of Thatcher Berry. Thatcher Berry's dad was the uh, Standard Gas Station owner's or uh, proprietor's son. And everybody loved Thatcher Berry, according to my brother, Dennis. And we had the, the Greyhound bus was coming into Port San Lake on a daily basis. And he would go down south of the, the main corner, maybe down by the Bel Air uh, restaurant down in that way and watch for the bus. And the bus driver would um, pick him up, stop and pick him up and bring him to the corner and let him off. And uh, he did this on a regular basis. And uh, the, one, the one day, one day, he got off the bus and ran out and he got hit by a car. And that was the wow. end of Thatcher Berry. <laughs> but I would have loved to have met Thatcher Berry. He sounded like a really cool kid, a nice kid. Sure. I don't know if he played baseball or not, but my brother Dennis do, does remember him. Hmm. But there are a lot of those sad events, of course, that mark our lives, and with, I think we change our lives because of them. Sure. Uh, we do things differently because of yeah. things like that. But there are a lot of uh, uh, joyful, joyful things in life as well that are just as good. Um. I could talk here forever. I don't know how much more time we got, but uh, you 
take a look at your list there. I gave you a list earlier. I, I we could talk about farming and working for well, we, farmers sometime. We don't have to burn it all up because uh, as long as you're having a good time, I'd certainly like to do this again. So okay. we, don't to, we don't have to pick them all apart all at the same time. But uh, okay. uh, I guess we can venture into one other thing and then I'll let you have the rest of your evening to relax. But uh, at some point, uh you after you get out of uh the peace corps you uh because you met your wife in the peace corps if i'm not mistaken right 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 she so, she was serving in the peace corps at the same time yeah i met her there in liberia so at some point uh she fell for your charm and good wit and <laughs> <laughs> and you yes. were you were able to convince her at some point to uh, join you in the Port Sandlack area, and right, and slowly right. she did. She did uh, uh, on her way back from Africa. She did stop and check the crew out, check, uh, make sure everybody was <laughs> up to snuff. And no, uh, no, um, we're both very fortunate. We'll be celebrating fifty years uh, here. Uh, wow! On um, June twelfth. So it's been very good. Uh, I've been very fortunate, and uh, we've had two wonderful kids out of it, and now a bunch of grandkids uh, that uh, you know you're, you're looking out for. Uh, that's what grandparents sometimes do; they look out for their grandkids. So, sure. but no, it's been uh, it's been a wonderful experience. Like I say, I go back to uh, Mayo Smith saying, "No, yeah. no, I don't want you," and so. Your life goes in a different direction, but uh, you know, when you got lemons, you make lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you just a quick funny story about Maya before we end this. Yeah, love to hear it. Uh, back, you know, when we were uh, still in high school together, that's when I was really starting to experiment with uh, uh, the 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 DJ aspect of things uh, for oh, high school sure. dances and stuff like that, and. I was trying to push to get a dance every Friday that I could just, and it was just simply my own doing because I wanted the opportunity to, to play in front of live people instead of my bedroom all the time. And I was struggling and struggling and struggling to find enough chaperones. And I had, I don't know if it was, I asked you directly or if I asked Maya, if she would ask you. <laughs> and but at some point you agreed to it and the the dance didn't end up happening because it didn't have enough time between when i put it in motion to get approved by the superintendent before that week but i when i told her i said yeah you can tell your dad he doesn't have to worry about it because they won't approve it she was like oh thank god <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what? She's like, do you really think that I want my dad there while I'm trying to hang out with my friends? <laughs> uh, that's you know, that's that's typical, that's for sure. Yeah. And I don't know how many times I've watched kids going in in and out of that school where the teenagers I'm talking about, where the teenager was zooming light years ahead of the parent to get in there before they had to be associated with. Yeah. For sure, and dad, you know. <laughs> um, um, you know, uh, your mom. You had a wonderful. You have a wonderful mom. I and it, she married Mike Wallace. I believe. Yeah, yeah they got married. Uh, 
Well, I was already, let me see, I started working in Detroit in 98. And I was already working, to, I think they got married in 99, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. If she ever, ever listens to this, I'm probably going to get the board of correction on the, <laughs> on the backside for not remembering. But I think it was 99, I think, is when they got married. So 22, yeah, 22 years now. Yeah. Wow. Nice family. I worked with his mother on the sports boosters and, uh, yeah. and uh, his grandpa uh, would be his dad, I guess. Cliff Wallace, is that right? Uh, or, no. No. That's not right. Cliff was the grandpa. Yeah. And then there, I can't remember uh, his dad's name. But uh, anyway, yeah, if you give me the a Wallaces, it's interesting. Uh, there it would be maybe a great, great grandpa. Uh, came up on Lake Huron on a boat. Uh, he was a cobbler, made shoes. Wow. And he sought out the lumberjacks because he knew they needed shoes. Mm -hmm. And so he ended up in Sandlight County and stayed there and somehow they you know, started that farm. Wow. But uh, uh, I can't remember uh, maybe your uh, stepfather's mother's name uh, worked Riva. with her. Riva. What is it? Reva. Reva, yeah, wonderful. wonderful. Yep, and I just remembered her, her husband's name was Colin. Yes, there you go. Uh, great people. I worked with both of them. And I remember working uh, to make some money so we could build those ball fields for you kids. Yeah. And uh, one summer day, I, Colin had come down to the drugstore, the one that we talked about earlier, and asked me how the sales were going on and tickets we were selling. Tickets on a brand new car and uh, at $50 a pop and limited to a certain number. But I had a nice chat with him and he took off. And then later that day, I heard that uh, he had and, uh, survived a, a tractor incident where he, he uh, got caught up in the power takeoff on the tractor. Oh, boy. And uh, ripped him, ripped his clothes right off him. I think he still had his shoes on, but was badly bruised. But he survived. Yeah, he survived. Yeah, good, good people. Farming is another big area. If you ever want to talk about what it was like to do harvesting in the old days before uh, tractors were on the scene, we can do that one because okay, uh, that was really good stuff. That was sure powerful stuff. All right, Jerry. Well, listen, I appreciate you giving me the time and uh, letting myself and whoever else ends up listening to this episode a little glimpse into your life. And uh, always, well, it's been my pleasure. My pleasure. Charismatic and engaging, and uh, you know the devilish little smile that I see flashing <laughs> right now. <laughs> I'm sure it's got me into trouble, and I didn't know it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's think about let's uh, think about all that good baseball stuff, and here's to all of the the good good stuff that comes from that. And uh, so, peace be with you, and right. have a great, great day. All right, thank you, my friend. Bye bye.